This is the Serial and Midnight Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the Serial and Midnight Podcast. My name is Heath Holland, and in this episode, we are celebrating the 40th anniversary of the Dungeons and Dragons animated series that ran from September of 1983 to 1985. For a series that only has 27 episodes, the lifespan and the fan base for this series is absolutely massive. It's been released on physical media multiple times, and now on the 40th anniversary, we have celebrations from multiple companies. Hasbro has released uh, an action figure line with all of the characters, including Dungeon Master and the villain of the series, Vinger, who's voiced in the cartoon by Peter Cullen, who is soon to be the voice of Optimus Prime, and still is the voice of Optimus Prime all these decades later. Uh, IDW released a comic book miniseries called Dungeons & Dragons Saturday Morning Adventures, and they even did a one-shot, uh, Endless Summer sort of a summer special, and I hope that they keep that going because I absolutely love keeping up with these characters. It's aged remarkably well because it was always a very well-written series. Uh, And the characters even pop up in the Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves film. If you've seen it, there's a sort of a, I'm not going to spoil it if you haven't, but there's an arena scene, sort of a gladiator kind of a scene late in the movie, and they're in it. There's our guys. You see them, and that can be sort of a violent scene, but our characters survive that scene. Our classic Dungeons & Dragons cartoon characters make it through. Uh, There's so much love for Dungeons & Dragons, and so on the occasion of the 40th anniversary, I wanted to reach out and uh, connect with the man who kicked the whole thing off, Mr. Mark Evanier. Now, you know Mark Evanier from a lot of different things. He's the writer of Sergio Aragones' Gru. He's the Eisner Award winner of uh, the, the biographer of Jack Kirby, who he knew and was a huge champion and advocate for. Uh, his cartoon and comics work alone are huge. If you go to his IMDb page, look at just his cartoon work and just prepare to be blown away. This conversation veers into Thundar territory. I was not expecting it to go there, but it did, and I was so happy that it did. Uh, Mark Evanier created the series Bible for Dungeons & Dragons. He set the 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 plot in motion. He's the guy that made this ready for television. He literally developed it for television. This is a super fun conversation. If you love Dungeons and Dragons, this is for you. If you're just a fan of Saturday morning cartoons, this is for you. There's so much to geek out here about, and that's what I want to do. So without further ado, Mark Evanier, the series developer for Dungeons and Dragons. I could talk, you have done so many things that we could be talking about. Dungeons and Dragons, just in the grand spectrum of your career where does it fall for you is this something that you think about often well it's something i get asked about often i don't think about it often because as you will learn in our conversation i spent very little time on that show i got i did the pilot i launched it i sold it my my my, my job was to make cbs order the series cbs ordered the series and i worked on one other episode after the pilot and consulted a little bit here and there and 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 recommended some of the voice people and some of the other writers and then I was gone and I had nothing to do with the show after that except that I produced a special I think the second season Dungeons and Dragons was on a primetime special for CBS previewing their new Saturday morning schedule and we had scenes from Dungeons and Dragons redubbed I actually had to go back and write new dialogue for the characters and we re-recorded it um, with Frank Welker 
and uh, so that was my other only other contact with the show. Now, is that I, the one with Joyce DeWitt? Is that Joyce the one DeWitt? That's the one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, did you get, uh, did anybody get free pantyhose with that deal? <laughs> no, no, I don't think Joyce even got any. But uh, ah, we ah. had a we had a ver that was a very unusual fun shoot. Uh, it went till way way in the morning, uh, and we had to deliver that. You know when you when you um, they don't do those specials anymore. But when we did them, I did about six of them. I did at least one for every network. Mm -hmm. And I think I did three for ABC, two for CBS, something like that. And you have to put in these clips of the new Saturday morning shows that are debuting the following morning. Well, back then, when you were when you were doing shows for CBS, ABC, or NBC, if you were the producer of the show, your mission was to deliver the show as late as possible. Literally the day before it had to air, because you didn't want them to come back and say, "Hey, we wanted you to redo the animation on this scene, or this thing is sloppy, or we don't like the music on this." So you deliver it at the last minute. Well, I have to put together a preview special, so I need clips from the show. So I would negotiate with the producers, say, "Please give me the video of this thing, so I don't have to edit it three hours before it airs." And mm -hmm. they'd say, okay, we'll we'll slip you the video if you don't tell the network you have it. As far as they're concerned, we're still working on it. And then the people of the network would call me and say, have you got the show yet? We want to come over and see it. And I would say to them, yeah, I've got it, but I don't have time to show it to you. We've got to be on the satellite. Uh, uh, if the show aired at 8 p.m. Eastern time, we had to deliver it that morning at 7 a.m. To CB, this is at CBS we're talking about, and uh, because they had had to satellite it to New York, because it had to emanate from there, and New York had to take it and put in the station break stuff, and mm -hmm. you know do a little work on it before they could air it. So we had to have it to CBS, which then, just until just recently, was at the corner of Beverly and Fairfax, and get it there at seven a.m. and uh, so we would finish editing at 4 a.m. And the year that that particular special aired, I think, was the year that the co-producer and I, finished, we finished at 4 a.m. And we decided to go out to breakfast and celebrate that we were finished with the thing. So we went to this restaurant that's no longer there called Dupar's at the corner of Laurel Canyon and Ventura, which was on the way. I live near, C live near CBS, so I was going to take the finished tape, which is in a big blue plastic container you know carrying mm -hmm. case the the only copy <laughs> i was gonna say is this like in a briefcase with handcuffs chains like almost well yeah. so i was gonna take the show with me stop at dupars have breakfast with the other producer and then i would continue to cbs and get there before 7 a.m to deliver it so i took the show into the restaurant with me i didn't want to leave it in the car and we sat there talking about, you know, thanks, you know, we finished this and you did a great job on that. Thank you. And thanks. And then I suddenly realized, oh, my God, I got to leave now if I'm going to be at CBS by 7 a.m. So I run out, get in the car. I'm driving over Laurel Canyon to try to get there. I'm halfway there when I realized I left the show in the restaurant. The tape is in the back of the restaurant. So I pulled like, it wasn't even a U-turn, it was more like a W. And I shot back. I pull into the Dupar's parking lot and the waitress is standing outside with the tape canister saying, did you forget something? Wow. So I jumped out, I grabbed it, I gave her a $20 bill as a tip. I jumped back in the car and I'm racing over to Laurel Canyon to get there. And I get to CBS three minutes to 7 a.m. 
and I'm running up and all the doors were locked. There are, I'm running around the building with the tape canister trying to get in. And there are these one, this one place where all these people are lined up to get into the Price is Right. They've been camped out overnight to get in to see the Price is Right. <laughs> and I'm running past them and they're going, what's going on with that guy? And finally I get in. It's now like 7.05 and I'm worried they won't be able to handle it. And they tell me, and I run down the hall. Remember the scene in broadcast news where the lady is running like crazy to get the tape on the air? I was doing that. I was running through CBS. And finally, I get to the broadcast center place, which is the secret place that broadcasts, you know, the whole West Coast. Every show is broadcast on the West Coast is emanated from there. And I, you know, I'm exhausted and I'm panting and I'm sweating and I'm exhausted. And the guys in there are like, okay, thank you. Here we go. And they're sitting there watching a real, not, not for broadcast, a reel of the Price is Right models in bikinis. They're just sitting there. Somebody's got a tape of all the shots of the Price is Right models modeling stuff in bikinis. And they're just watching this and like, oh, oh, we got to take that down. We got to satellite this thing. <laughs> and they just thread it on the machine and put send it off to New York. And I'm wheezing. And <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, wow, what a close call. What if you? I mean, what if you hadn't made it? What would? Uh, so, what something would have, well, I was telling myself they've got to make an accommodation. They can't not run the show. They'll do something. I, I just they'll just be annoyed at me that I screwed up their schedule of broadcasting stuff. That's yeah. all. It, all. All that's going to happen is they're going to be annoyed at us. It's got to get on the air, and they. I'm sure they have trans. I mean, you know, look, they they broadcast live from Los Angeles. This is just the easier way to do it. They've yeah. got to be contingency plans. And the other thing you remember, I remember in television, is that every disaster that befalls you has befallen someone else before. They've dealt with this. This has happened before. You mm -hmm. can't invent a new disaster. So, so you know, the worst is they go, oh, this is just like last week when the sports guys didn't have the, the interview in time. It's, 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 it's all very simple, but it's new, it's new to you. Yeah. So, so you, it's, it's like, you know, going to have a, have an operation, you know, you're going to have your cataract surgery and you're thinking, oh my God, this is cataract surgery. This is a life changing event. Yeah, it is for you. The guy who's doing the surgery, this is surgery number 7,580 for him. Mm -hmm. And it's the fourth one of the day. So it's, it's, it's very uh, routine. Yeah. He's thinking about dinner while yeah. he's doing it. That's right. Yes. Yeah. He's probably watching the prices, right? Models and bikinis. <laughs> Probably so. While he's you know doing your your operation. So anyway, that's that was my last contact with Dungeons and Dragons, except for the fact that I kept getting asked to do commentary tracks and interviews and panels and things like that. And it's very you know gratifying that the shows had that bigger run, and so many people still love it. Well, and here, 40 years later, I reach out to you and I'm like, hey, it's been 40. This is the yeah. 40th anniversary. Of the First of all, yeah. can you believe it's been 40 years? Um, Does it feel I, like it? I, I still think I'm 27 years old. So, yeah, I, yeah, it's very loose. And I, we did a panel at Comic-Con this year with uh, Katie Lee and a bunch of other people who mm -hmm. were peripheral to the show were on it. And that was fun. And I, I posed with a whole bunch of cosplayers dressed as the characters. Uh and it was nice. I mean, it's 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 very nice when something you do contribute to has that life. And you know, as as I've told you here, I didn't have that much to do with the show, 
Except well, you wrote the series Bible, right? I mean, you yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. What what happened basically? This is the story you want to hear. All right. Okay. I was doing a lot of different pilots for Saturday morning at the time. I was in favor with the people who happened to be at the networks then. So I did pilots for NBC and CBS and ABC. Some of them I took my name off of when the show sold. I didn't take credit for them for various reasons, but. I sold. Do we know them. what those shows are? Have you been? Have you ever gone public with any? Uh, not, not with most of them. No. Um, uh, but I just because I think when you, you know, distance yourself from a show like that, one or two of them were contractual things. Okay. Essentially, the company said the, the, there was another guy on one of the shows. There was another guy who was involved in the creation of the show, and he didn't want my name on the end credits. He didn't want to say developer television by Mark Evanier, and he, they paid me money to not take that credit. And I, and he was changing the show so much from what I did that I said, oh, let's make him happy. I'll just take the money and take my name off it. So, you know, that wouldn't cause a problem today, but I think it'd be unethical to, to go public yeah. with it. Um, and some of the shows I just didn't want to be associated with. Um, and, uh, but I did pilots. I think I probably sold nine shows, 10 shows uh, on all three networks. And it was one year, I'm not sure if it was the, I guess it was the year of Dungeons and Dragons when I did a, I sold a show on CBS and one on ABC and one on NBC. And I, I, I did the pilots that sold the shows. Um, and what had happened is that Marvel production was this animation studio that was trying to very hard to do cartoons that weren't shows that were based on Marvel characters. They, you know, they could do the fantastic four and such, but they wanted to be thought of as a, as a studio that offered more than that, including much more cartoony things. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had developed the year before they had developed a show, which is a little like Dungeons and Dragons. A friend of mine named Dennis Marks, had done the main development work on that show for NBC. And it was called something like Magic and Monsters or Monsters and Magic, or I think it was M&M something. And it hadn't sold. Uh, and uh, at some point, and I was not present, I was not involved in this. Somebody said, hey, let's do, let's make it Dungeons and Dragons. Let's get the rights to the actual property. Instead of making it like a knockoff of Dungeons and Dragons, let's do the real thing. So they made a deal with Gary Gygax or whoever you made a deal with for that. Mm -hmm. And they started developing this show and they used what Dennis had done as kind of a skeleton. And, and other people, quite a few other people besides me were involved in converting that show to Dungeons and Dragons. And I don't, and I have no idea how much of the previous show wound up in Dungeons and Dragons and other writers worked on it. And what frequently happens, cause I get called in a lot on this is that when a show passes through lots of different writers, it keeps expanding. People keep adding new characters. People keep getting new menaces. People keep adding new villains and they don't take anything away. So the show gets bloated. And CBS wanted to buy this Dungeons and Dragons show for a couple of reasons. Not the least of which is they thought it was a commercial show that people would want to watch if it was done properly, but also because they wanted to buy a show from Marvel. They didn't want to buy all their schedule from Hanna-Barbera, which was the alternative. And you, you know, you, you discover if you were a network, if you if everybody if you bought all your shows from Hanna Barbera and everybody else bought all their shows from Hanna Barbera, 
Hanna-Barbera didn't really care which one did better because Hanna-Barbera would have a show on ABC opposite a show on CBS opposite a show on NBC. And why should they care which one gets the highest ratings or which one's the better show? So Marvel wanted to buy this thing and they couldn't. The lady at CBS who was in charge of um, buying shows was a woman named Judy Price, who had previously been the person at ABC who had hired me to write some of their pilots over there. In fact, since I did a pilot for Daredevil for Marvel Productions for ABC, which they almost bought, it got on the schedule and then it fell off because Hanna-Barbera did an end run and you know, offered them something else cheaper to replace it, which Hanna-Barbera was capable of doing. Um, and all the time I'm doing this Dungeons and Dragons thing, there's a very real possibility everybody's head that Hanna-Barbera will suddenly come in and offer CBS a deal they can't say no to for something if they can kick Dungeons and Dragons off the schedule. That didn't happen in this case. But um, Judy said to the people at Marvel Productions, I can't buy this show. The Bible and pilot, the pilot script doesn't make any sense. I don't like the pilot script. It isn't very good. It doesn't show us how the show works. The Bible is full of stuff I can't figure out. You need someone, you need a fresh look. Your guys can't do this. Why don't you get Mark Evanier? And I don't remember if Judy called me first or Marvel called me first. The guy at Marvel was named Lee Gunther. And I had worked for him before and I had lunch with Lee a few times and we talked about projects. And he called me up and he said, I really need you to, you know, he said he, and he, and he, Lee was always apocalyptic. We've got to get this or we're all dead. We got this. We're, we're doomed if we don't sell this show, which was not probably true. And he said, uh, you've got to do this for me, Mark. And you've got if, if, if we don't sell this show, the studio will close down. We'll go out of business. I don't believe that for a minute. But, no pressure. But, but people in television tend to get very emotional about the next sale. Yeah. And he, I said, when do you need it? And I don't remember exactly the days involved, but basically I had about three days for a Bible and a pilot script. I mean, if I'd taken four, again, they would have they would have bent the schedule for that. But but CBS was committed to locking down the schedule on a certain date. And it would be better if they didn't postpone it for me. So yeah. I said, okay. And then we had a, a one hour mud wrestling match with my agent discussing how much money I'd be paid and they ended up paying me very well but probably it meant more than they wanted to pay but my agent that's that's an agent's job an agent is mm -hmm. one of his jobs is to take advantage of this kind of a situation and get you every nickel you can because they know you're not going to make it on the back end yeah. you're not going to you know the show could be an enormous hit and they're and they're they're never going to pay you your profit share or anything like that. So you got to make it up front. So I think I had a meeting with Judy and her people. And uh, oh, okay. Let me since, since you want all these stories here, I will tell you something. Back when NBC was developing Magic and Monsters or Monsters and Magic or whatever it was, mm -hmm. I was developing a show for them called kissy fur and later be, yeah kissy fur was it on nbc i watched it and, i was there and a friend of mine who the creative kissy firm was the producer of it was a man named phil mendez it was a very lovely funny 
brilliant artist. And one day, Phil and I are um, at NBC late. It's like 6.30 at night, meeting with the CBS, the, the, with the, excuse me, with the NBC Saturday morning people. And our meeting is finished. And we say to the, the women there, they were all women on the, on the staff at that time, except for a fellow named Sam Ewing, who wasn't present at that meeting. Uh, can we walk you down to your car? Which seemed polite to do. It's after dark. It's in Burbank. And they said, no, we've got to wait here. Marvel is sending over a presentation for some show. We, we got to wait. The artwork's on its way here. We got to wait in the scripts. So, okay, so Phil and I leave. And we walk down to the parking lot at NBC together. And we see the Marvel van pull in. And a, a messenger, a guy who runs errands for them, is, comes out with these big boards of artwork and, and an envelope full of scripts. And for no visible reason, I think to make Phil laugh, because Phil laughed was a great laugher, I said to the guy, is that the presentation for uh, Magic and Monsters or whatever the name of the show was? I remembered it then. And the guy goes, yeah. I said, here, we'll take that. And he handed it to us, and he gets in the van and drives off. And we're staying there with Marvel's production, which is competing with our show for a time yeah. slot on the schedule. So we're just laughing at the fact that we've got Marvel's presentation. And our first thought was to call Marvel, you know, anonymously and say, we've got your presentation here. If you ever want to see it again, uh, there was a fellow named Don Jerwich, who was one of the producers there at the moment. We said, if you really want to see it again, send Don Jerwich out naked with $25,000. <laughs> Because we thought Tom would enjoy being sent out naked with $25,000. He would yeah. have. And uh, then, then Phil's idea was, let's go someplace, find a, find some art supplies, and he would redraw the presentation in about three minutes with stick figures and make it look stupid. <laughs> and I'd rewrite the uh, presentation. And we thought, oh, we're just keeping those ladies waiting for dinner. So we took it up and turned it in. And the people at NBC told the people at Marvel what had happened. And the people at Marvel yelled at that poor kid who <laughs> the messenger guy all right so Do we know uh, who that was maybe that was like a future editor-in-chief I, I, I don't i don't know his name but here's what happened so now we're a year later and mar leading gunther at marvel says okay mark i'm going to send you over the dungeons and dragons all the work we've done now for it and and you can take a look at it so you know, half an hour later, an hour later, my phone, my doorbell rings. I answer the door. It's the same kid with the presentation. He goes, oh, no, no. And he starts running to the van. No, no, you're not going to do that to me again. No, no, is this one I'm supposed to have? So, I just so, wanted to be somebody like Joe Casada that went it, on to be it, this huge. It, it could have been, for all I know. Yeah, Some, yeah. Someday I will walk into an executive suite and that old guy go, oh, you're the guy who thought it was so funny to take the presentation, right? Uh <laughs> Anyway, so they I, they sent me the Dungeons and Dragons thing. I read it over and I thought this thing has too damn many characters in it. It's it's just loaded with too many stupid premises and it, there's a good show in here, but I've got to dig it out. So a lot of what I did was throwing stuff out. There were ideas. There were other monsters in it besides Tiamat. There was other recurring dragons. There was a uh, a character who popped up. You know, to to a certain extent. The stories are mysteries where the kids have to figure out how to get someplace. And there was a guy, a character who would pop up all the time and send them in the wrong direction. A guy who was just a compulsive liar and would send a gnome. He was a gnome character and he would send them in different directions. I got rid of him. 
uh, I changed a couple of the descriptions of the characters. The character you know as Eric was named Percy. And I thought Percy was a name that late at that time people were using as a joke for a gay character. So I made him, I made him Eric. It just, you know, and I think there were a few other name changes and things like that. And I gave the characters whatever backstory I could and simplified it, given that I was basically had 24 hours to write the Bible in. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in the Bible, I wrote five or six ideas for other episodes. I don't, I haven't looked at this thing in 20 years. Yeah. I know it's on the internet someplace. I'll send you a link. Yeah, it's out okay. there. You can no, anyway. And I wrote a couple of plots and Judy Price calls me the next morning and says, this is great. Write that script. She took, she picked the plot that I had, which I think we later took out of the Bible. If it's not in the finished Bible, I think we took it out of the, that, the Bible because I was writing the pilot of it. And I wrote the script in you know, day and a half, two days, tops, and handed it in. And uh, I get a call from Judy saying, um, you, this is exactly what we needed. Thank you. We're going to pick up the show. And then half an hour later, I get a call from Lee Gunther, who obviously has told Judy, don't tell Mark. Let me be the one to tell him. And she, so he leaves goes, Mark, I got some great news you won't believe. And I go, oh, really, Lee, what is it? He says, they're picking up the show. You did it. I go, really? You know? And uh, then I had a couple of more meetings to do other drafts on the pilot to revise some things. We got some notes. We fixed some things. Uh, I remember a fellow named Bob Richardson, who was one of the main producers of the show, got involved at that point. He had some points of view in it. And... Uh, we finished the script and they had me start had me start on another one. And at that point, they made they made me an offer to be the story editor, the showrunner of the show. And I had other offers at the time. I had other things I was committed to. And I thought, I can't do all these things. I've got to, something's gotta go. So I recommended that they uh, as a story editor, I recommended two friends of mine who both did some work on the show, though they were not staff, he did not become staff. Uh, Steve Gerber and Buzz Dixon both did something on the show. And then Hank Saroyan called me. Uh, now, Hank, I knew for years, Hank and I used to share an office in Hanna-Barbera. He was story editing Laverne and Shirley in the Army, and I was story editing Richie Rich, and we shared an office. And I was almost never there because I was doing other stuff all the time. I, when I was working for Hanna-Barbera, it was my side job from, I, I was writing these variety specials for Sid and Marty Croft that I would just pop into Hanna-Barbera for three or four hours a week and pick up my mail and stuff. I was also running the Hanna-Barbera comic book department at the same time. So Hank and I were old friends and Hank had been assigned, and he was like an interim story editor before they settled in and he was going to voice direct the show and cast it and i gave him some suggestions on casting um peter cullen was my suggestion i said you know for the unicorn you're gonna you're gonna audition everybody and get give it to frank welker and they auditioned everybody and gave it to frank welker and i suggested a few other people who didn't get picked uh oddly enough sydney miller was hired to play the dungeon master i knew sydney i was working with him one of the croft shows and i didn't suggest him for that um and uh 
uh, Hank put together a very, very good cast. And he was a very good voice director. Mm -hmm. And uh, he would keep me posted on things. He called me up every so often. Uh, I had built into my contract on the pilot script that uh, any changes that had to be made on the script, I had to make. I could, they couldn't rewrite me. And Hank came to me and said, will you trust me to rewrite you? And I said, yes, I'll trust you. So I called Lee Gunther and I said, okay, you know that clause that says you guys can't rewrite me? Well, Hank, I, I'm expanding it. Hank can rewrite me if necessary. So I did a certain number of revisions of the pilot and then anything else that was done, Hank did. And then uh, the episode that I wrote, the second one, I wrote an outline for it. And then suddenly they came to me and they said, we need this like tomorrow. And that that was a deadline I could not meet because I was doing something else that had to be in tomorrow. Right. And so I just backed off on that and said, give it to somebody else to finish. And I think they gave it to Cameron Ringwald, if I'm not mistaken, or somebody else. It's another name on that script. Mm -hmm. And that was really the end of my involvement until, you know, this, I mean, we, I would talk to the people occasionally there and people would call me up and say I was going well. And, and Peter Cullen called and thanked me for getting him the vo voice. Peter was not the only person I suggested. I made several suggestions, but you know, he was an excellent, you know, nobody, nobody, when you put reverb in their voice was more threatening than Peter Cullen. Mm -hmm. He just sounded amazing. And, and he, Peter was in the first cartoon show I'd ever directed. I knew him from back then. What, which was what? Uh, I directed a Saturday, a preview, not a preview special. I directed a special called Deck the Halls with Wacky Walls for NBC. It was a Christmas special with the Wacky Wall Walkers, which was a bunch of toys that they wanted. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I wrote and directed, voice directed that show. And I had this incredible, basically what happened with that was that I'd written the show and it was, this was being produced by NBC. There was, no, there was an animation company a subcontract that was going to do the animation, but NBC owned this show. It was an in-house production. And they came to me after the script was all okay. And they said, here's a list of voice directors who are available. Which one would you like? And I looked at the list and all the good ones were under contract someplace. They couldn't get them. I looked at the list of the people who were available. And I said, I can't do a worse job than these people. If you'll let me cast the show the way I want, I will voice direct it for nothing. You can just you don't have to pay me. And they went, you got it. So I put together a cast. This was the cast I had. Frank Welker, Dawes Butler, Bill Scott of Bullwinkle fame in his first ever non-Jay Ward voice job on Saturday morning or tele wow. network television. Um, Press McNeil, Howard Morris, Marvin Kaplan. Um, I can't remember all the other people. They were, they're all people of that caliber. And we needed a young kid in it. And I, I hired a kid named Scott Menville, who was a child actor at the time and has since grown up to be one of the major important adult voice actors. Mm -hmm. And we recorded this show and I looked at this cast and I thought, my God, a rhesus monkey to direct this show with this cast. You, you, you can't botch this up at all. Although I came close at times. And Peter, and Peter was, I needed a deep, deep mm -hmm. you know, voice. And my first choice was not available. My first choice was a man named Thurl Ravenscroft, who was the voice of Tony the Tiger. Oh, yeah. He was retired and living in Orange County, and I talked to him, and he just didn't want to do it. Thank you very much. So I hired Peter.
Yeah. Wasn't Peter Cullen the voice of the announcer on the Sonny and Cher show? Peter Cullen was all over the place. Peter yeah. Cullen is one of the most heard voices. Yeah, he was the announcer. On the, and he was on camera on the Sonny and Cher show a few mm -hmm. times and sketches yeah. and things. Yeah, he was. With Steve Martin, if memory serves, I believe Steve was on Steve, that show. Steve Martin was on that show. And uh, yeah, that, uh, that show was produced by a man named Chris Beard, who I worked for later. And Chris just had a knack for finding talent. Uh, and everybody on his shows... The show I did for him introduced to network television, Jan Hooks, who later was on Saturday Night Live, and Victoria Jackson and Arsenio Hall. It was his first break. Yeah, everybody on a Chris Beard show went on to better things except me. So, but you have you have quite a legacy, though. I want to get even. I want to get even nerdier with some of this stuff because I want to know. Okay, so you have this job. You have to write this. You've got to write the Bible. You're working on the script, fantasy animation like high fantasy animation wasn't really huge yet i mean we're talking so 83 uh he-man and the masters of the universe is like two weeks before the beginning of dungeons and dragons but thundar of course which you know a lot about thundar because yeah. you worked on every single episode thundar, I, right? I, in case of thundar the end credits you see on thundar are everybody who worked on the show in a writing capacity as of the time the end credits were made and I only wrote a couple episodes of Thundar. I did not, but my name's in every episode. Yeah. I also wrote the opening of Thundar, the, uh, the narr narr narration where Dick Tufeld, who I actually cast, tells the the uh, beginning, you know, backstory yeah. in the opening titles. That is one of the darkest uh, cartoon openings of all time because it's like, you know, post-apocalyptic. I mean, we were talking about them for children, yeah. right? The children yeah. are watching yeah. this and it's like, yeah. this is... Yeah. I was involved in the meetings where Thundar was created. Uh, Joe Ruby had a lot to do with it. My friend Steve Gerber had an awful lot to do with yeah. it. Steve probably had more to do with it than anyone else. I think I named Thundar the character. Uh, I know Marty Pasco named Ukla the mock character in there. Mm -hmm. And I think Steve named Princess Ariel. And Alex Toth did the original designs of them. And then when he wasn't available to continue that, I recommended Jack Kirby, who came in and did the rest of the designs. But Thundar was another show that I get way more credit for than I deserve. Uh, it's like, you know, I stepped, I had other work. I stepped away from it. Okay. And uh, I was doing, um, I was supposed to write half of thundars the, the first season ordered i think was for 13 or 16 i i was supposed to write half of them and steve gerber was going to write the other half and then steve got very busy and i got very busy uh i was picked up a show i did for the sid and marty croft i was the head writer of that show it was a prime time variety special thing and uh so i just had to turn loose of thundar you have sometimes you have too much work Maybe you can help. This has just become like a Thundar conversation now, but and I would love to talk to you more about Thundar at some point, but I do want to ask you this about Thundar. There's an episode. Maybe you can help me solve this mystery. There's an episode. I mean, that was like 80, 81, 1981. There's an episode where in the background, you know, the, the painted background, there's a, like a, like a marquee or a poster that says revenge of the Jedi, which wasn't out that's return of the jedi is 1983 and i'm like how did this end up in a 1981 I, show i never heard that before <laughs> so I i'll no, send you a no screenshot help. of it because it's in there i'm like well this is like two years before like either somebody on the inside must have known something the question that I, the question that i get a lot about thundar is on the backgrounds you frequently see xam 
if you look at the backgrounds on the on walls, it says XAM frequently, and people want to know what that's a code for, what that means. That's the name of the animation studio that did the animation. Um, <laughs> the first batch of stuff, I don't know at what point they stopped. A lot of the subcontracting was to a company called Ahern Marshall. Two guys named Ahern and Marshall had a little animation studio, I think in Utah someplace, and they did a lot of animation. And then a bunch of their people got mad at them and broke off and started a new company competing with them called XAM, former Ahern Marshall people, and they ended up doing a lot of the animation for Thundar. Gotcha. They That's tagged what's it. on there. And I keep yeah. getting every year or so I get an email from someone who says, I think I figured out the code with that. And they've got some theory that has <laughs> that has nothing whatsoever to do with X means 10. It, it it's somebody it it it's like somehow they've figured out a way that it proves that Donald Trump won the election or something like that. It's just <laughs> a weird, strange theory. But uh no, I don't know about the return of the Jedi. I know yeah. the, the I know the you know the lightsabers in there were Star Wars had preceded that because sure, the yeah, were kind of stolen from that. Well, but, and there's so many. You see the influence of Star Wars on everything that came after it, and there's even the Dungeons and Dragons. There's there's an episode with basically Ewoks. You know, I mean, it's like that stuff had a long had a long impact. But here's what I wanted. This is where I'm getting at. Like in high fantasy on television at that time wasn't really a thing yet. So I was kind of curious what influences you're drawing on. I'm guessing comic books, right? Yeah, comic books. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Steve Gerber and Marty Pasco and I would, were all guys who'd worked for DC and Marvel. Mm -hmm. Lots of comic books. We'd read zillions of them. Um, you know, I mean, science fiction movies. Um, uh, there was, there were arguments a lot on whether Saturday morning should get into that. There was a lady at in standards and practices at ABC who hated that stuff. She called Johnny Quest the show that ruins anime, TV animation. And she was and she was quite uh, uh, not reticent to talk about that. Um, uh, and and oddly enough, when I was I worked on uh, for two or three years, I did the TV show That's Incredible. And at the same time, I was storyting Richie Rich for Hanna Barbera. And doing other stuff beside that. But she was the standards and practices person on That's Incredible. And she was the standards and practices person on Richie Rich. <laughs> so she would give me notes on the That's Incredible script. She'd say, you got to cut that joke. You got to cut that line. You got to cut that line. And then she'd give me things on Richie Rich. You got to cut that joke. You got to cut that line. And I'd say, I'll tell you what. If you let me keep this line on Richie Rich, I'll cut that line on That's Incredible. And <laughs> we'd make a deal. Because you always had to barter with these people. Yeah. Okay. They they would they would demand more cuts than they expected to get, and if they wanted to cut, you know, three things, they'd tell you to cut nine, and then and sacrifice the other six to get the three they wanted, mm -hmm. and uh, and then I'd find out that Hanna Barbera, after I'd talk her out of the cuts at Richie Rich, I would find out Hanna Barbera had cut the stuff out themselves. So so I was wasting my time fighting. Well, see, that's an area I wanted to go down that avenue because I am wondering, you know, the Dungeons and Dragons and, and Thunder the Barbarian. I mean, the 80s are a transformative era for cartoons and for comics and for culture in general. There, It is the era of the satanic panic. Was there any sort of moral pushback against the work that you were doing at the time? I, I think that stuff gets exa way exaggerated. I think there was very little of it. The networks have been known to go apoplectic to get two letters from someone. And you know, if you and I were producing a show now, this is let's go back to the 80s here because it's changed a lot okay. now. But in the 80s, if you and I were producing a show for any of the networks, 
primetime animation, whatever it was, um, someone would come to us and they'd say, you have to cut these seven things out of the show. And we'd say, they're fine. And we'd argue them. And we would always talk them out of a few. You could always talk them out of a few. And then they'd say, okay, um, because these will cause us trouble. These will get protests. These will be objected. They're mm -hmm. not, except for this one lady I mentioned who was on a holy mission to launder Saturday morning television. The rest of the standards of practices people, their attitude was, hey, listen, I didn't make the rules. I'm just the umpire here. You know, I, I think it's dumb too, but we have to cut this kind of a joke. We've gotten problems with this kind of joke and things like that. Very rarely, but sometimes they would have a good point. There were certain things that they asked us to, to take out of the show. I went, yeah, you're right. That's that's we shouldn't do that because kids are watching this stuff. Um, and so then they would get protests, but they would be protests about something that nobody taught, flagged. They were always wrong about what people would object to. I can't tell you how many times on TV shows I worked on and there was a joke and I'd say, I'm not cutting it. And they say, oh, we're going to get tons of mail. And I'd say, well, then we'll deal with the tons of mail. Too bad. And the joke would go in, it would air, and 60 million people would see it, and nobody would object to that joke. They'd complain about something else. Dungeons and Dragons was canceled because CBS felt the ratings were trending downward and that it didn't warrant another season. And it's it's it, the people who love the show might want to dramatize it and say, oh, it was taken off the air because it was too adult or and, and it was it was a very good show and it was more adult than a lot of stuff on Saturday morning. But that wasn't the cause of its demise. The cause of its demise was that the audience was beginning to lose interest in it, which I wouldn't have. But, you know, did you keep up it. with it when you walked away from it? Did you watch? Did you ever? I, watch did, I didn't watch it every week. No, I I, I think I. I didn't. I somebody gave me a VHS tape one day of all the episodes. Uh, they gave me they gave me a comic convention and handed it to me. You know, have you got all the episodes of Dungeons and Dragons? And I said, No, I don't. Here. So I took it home and I put it in. I watched like one episode a day for you know a couple of weeks. And yeah, it's a good show. It was it's well a good done. show. It's a really yeah. good show. It's yeah. smartly written. It's better than a lot of what when so many shows during that era were just commercials for toys and that's all they were supposed to be. People like you, people like the writers elevated them to so much more than they could have been. Dungeons and Dragons is one of the best written shows of that era. And it I want to thank you. For that. It was a very well, I I only get a tiny piece of that. I only wrote you you set the wheels in motion. You set yeah, the yeah, example. Yeah, but they but they also hired good writers. They did. Yeah. They hired some very good people and there were good people working behind the scenes also. You know, there's no great show that only has one good person on it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the things that helped that show along a lot was the art staff. You, If you wrote something for that show, you knew it was going to get drawn right. You knew that it was going to get drawn by people who understood adventure illustration. Mm -hmm. When you were working at Hanna-Barbera, uh, I kept being asked to write Super Friends, and I never did. But Super Friends was a show I watched a couple times, and you could see that sometimes the episodes were being drawn by guys who should have been drawing Yogi Bear. But the way the schedule fell, they needed work. That episode needed to be drawn. So the episode that should have been drawn by the adventure guys was being drawn by the guys who should have been drawing, you know, Smurfs. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of that because nobody, I mean, Hannah Bradbury had some amazingly versatile artists working not only in the studio, but at the subcontracting houses around the, around the world, in Korea and places like that. And sometimes with the ridiculous schedules those shows had to be done on, 
and with the fact that sometimes there was a shortage of good artists, um, you know, an episode just got to the wrong crew and they did their best on it and their best was not right. But Dungeons and Dragons had a very, very good artist crew. Just the characters were well-designed. The mm-hmm. backgrounds were beautiful. Uh, the animation was cut above what a lot of other studios were doing at the time. Uh, you know, Takashi got the credit on a lot of that stuff and he was wonderful, but so were quite a few other people right in like, my friend Bob Klein was one of the main designers in that show, and he did a, a wonderful job of on it. You've uh, seen these toys, right? These these 40th anniversary. I've toys. seen. They were on stage a, at the I've panel. Seen a, yeah, I've seen a few of them. Yeah, they're really well done. And the spines, when you look at them sideways, they all line up to form a mural, which is basically the roller coaster and the amusement park. I mean, it's beautiful. So that's a testament to the design. That's what you're talking about. Is it? They yeah. just look. It's really well done. Yeah. It's a very good show, and and I was very fortunate. You know, if that show had gone to other writers and other artists, it would have lasted 13 weeks and been gone. That's right. And, and yeah. uh, as it was, it, it has had a, 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 a life that a uh, few shows of that period. It's, in, it's always interesting to me that some shows, you know, just seem to click and they have a, a huge afterlife. When I grew up in West L.A., my next door neighbor was a woman named Betty Lynn, who was on the Andy Griffith show. She played Thelma Lou. She had turned down a similar, a role of similar value on the Danny Thomas show. And she took on the Andy Griffith show. And for the rest of her life, people were paying Thelma Lou to do autographs. And so she, she retired to a community uh, called Mount Airy in North Carolina, which is more or I've less. Been there. Yeah. yeah. And, and she it's was great. the town. She was the town celebrity. I went there. I took her out to dinner and we like, it was like I was walking in the restaurant with Princess Margaret or something like that. She was royalty in that town. They wouldn't have given her any attention back here in LA. She was just an actress on a failed, on a canceled sitcom. But over there, that was, you know, Andy Griffith show was sacred. Mm-hmm. And she took me to the Andy Griffith museum and stuff like that. Well, the Danny Thomas show was at its time as successful as the Andy Griffith show, but which one is remembered? which one reruns constantly uh, all over television. They, the Danny Thomas shows you can barely find. People don't dress up like the characters. People don't remember, quote the lines from it. Um, there's three or four people in this country who make a living as Barney Fife impersonators, professional Barney Fife impersonators. They go to parties or they work at Mount Airy or they go part of tourist attractions. Nobody is a professional Sid Belton <laughs> imitator. Sid played Danny's manager. Um, it just has, a thing. it's just like, you know, Star Trek lives on. Some mm-hmm. other good science fiction shows you and I could name don't have the same staying power. And mm-hmm. if you go to these autograph shows, you'll, you'll see a huge line of people waiting to meet people from certain shows and not others. And Dungeons and Dragons hasn't had this following i i don't want to call it a cult because it isn't a cult it's it's a mainstream following mm-hmm. it just has had a a life way beyond and that is the credit to the people who wrote most of the episodes designed all the episodes did the music the music on the show is wonderful yes um and uh you know and and everybody's got their favorite element of it people want to tell me their favorite episode all the time people want to tell me their favorite character um uh i was one time in a nightclub with a producer he wanted to go out for the evening and the waitress who was extremely beautiful 
is passing our table and she hears us talking about cartoons. This producer wanted me to do a cartoon series. And she goes, oh, you guys into cartoons? I love cartoons. And uh, the producer says to her, what's your favorite cartoon show? And she says, oh, I love watching the Garfield cartoons. They're just wonderful. I, just, I watch them all the time. And, she, and he says, well, my friend here produced all the Garfield cartoon shows and wrote them all. And she gives it kind of like a, yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> like Because, you know, as you may not know, men have been known to lie to attractive women. Mm -hmm. And then he says to her, did you ever like any adventure shows, any of the superhero shows? And she says, oh, I used to wish I was the, the black girl in Dungeons and Dragons. This is a black lady. And she says, I just used to fantasize I was her. And he says to me, Mark, didn't you create that show? And I said, well, I didn't create the show. I, I, I did. And she goes, yeah, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> and then later on, she apparently went in the back room and there was a computer and she Googled just to see, you know, what, what liars those people are. And she found my picture on Wikipedia and she followed the page and says, you know, I know she went to the Garfield page and found Dungeons and Dragons or she went to the Dungeons and Dragons, found Garfield. And she came back and apologized to me because she just, it's one of those weird coincidences that happens in this world. Well, you've had a big impact. Your work well, has reached well, a lot yeah, of people. Well, well you know, it's... the humility is great, right? But you have written, you were the author of, of a lot of great stories that mean a lot to a lot of people. Oh, so. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, that you can say that about anybody who's had a long career, probably. If you work in television long enough, you will do something that people remember. I appreciate your humility. It, it's not but... humility. It's reality. Okay. It, it's very important. I, I think it's very important to not mistake uh, praise for anything more than what it is. It's this person's opinion. They liked it. Doesn't sure. mean any, everybody else did. It does. It's just, it's very nice. It's flattering. It's one of the reasons we get into this business, but you can't, I, I just know too many people who've let it go to their head and done been very yeah. stupid about it. So I, I try to err on the side of, I, I, I thank you very much, but, uh, yeah. Well, for your, how about this? For your part in that ensemble creation, I thank you. <laughs> Is that That's better? Fine. I'll take that. That's fine. Take that. Okay. okay. Yeah. Let's go tell people like what's, what's happening right now. I know we want to, we want people to go check out your blog. You, you're writing pretty much daily. It seems like. Uh, yeah, I'm writing a lot. I, I love the blog. It's, I've been doing it since December of 2000. There's like 33,000 messages on it. I tell people don't go there unless you have lots of time and don't like Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, uh, because it's fun to sit down and write something that's just mine. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't have to please anybody else. I don't have to, I have a, no boss who tells me, well, why'd you rephrase that? It's all me. It doesn't pay really. You get some donations in occasionally, but it doesn't even pay for itself. The cost of, you know, maintain the blog online, but it's fun to do. I think in this world, if you're going to be a, a writer, you have to write some things for yourself and I can write about anything I feel like. And I can tell these stories. If people are interested in Dungeons and Dragons, they can go to my blog, search for Dungeons and Dragons, and they'll probably find a few stories that they that you will. Yeah. There's several including, on there. including some things I've told here. Yeah. And I'm writing, uh, this comic book called Grew the Wanderer with my best friend in the world, Sergio Aragonis. He writes it. I write it. We write together. At times, we don't know who wrote what, but uh, 
It's a collaboration. Grew is an institution. I mean, that grew is Grew belongs in an institution. But <laughs> Grew is like, uh, I mean, it, it's it's amazing how how long you and Sergio have have worked on this this creation and uh, and stuck with it. And, and you know, with, with things come and go and trends change, Grew has been this sort of constant. Yeah, uh, and I'm doing. You know, I'm doing some some TV shows. I'm writing some different things that that I, I usually don't like to talk about these things until they're firm and have. Sure. Everything. Yeah. I, if if you look back, there's a few interviews I did where I talked about stuff that fell apart right after the interview went on YouTube. So yeah. Um, well, I'm not here for gossip. I just wanted to talk to you and and get your stories and and honestly, I wanted to thank you because I I appreciate a lot well, of what you've done. So well, thank you for doing that. I mean, I, I you're part of the reason that this show is still popular because people feed off each other's enthusiasm. The, the people who love this show have their enthusiasm in, reinforced by each other. They get together, they talk about it, they dress up like the characters, they write fan fiction stories about it, whatever it is, um, it spawns enthusiasm. And I like that, I, you know, at the, at the convention, we had the panel and there's all these people there most of whom knew the show better than I did. Um, and they, you know, they're dressing up as the characters. They're, they're, they're buying whatever merchandise there's available. They're lobbying for more. They're, they're buying the comic book that continues the adventures of these kids mm -hmm. and, and that strange world. Um, and I just, uh, I'm just pleased to have a little part of it. Anyway, I'm sorry. I've talked so long here, but it's, do not, uh, I want to let me I'm going to end the record. I'm going to say goodbye to you after we finish the recording. Thank you so much for being here. This was an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Couldn't you listen to the man talk all day long? The stories, just the casual stories that come out of this conversation about time and place and just the peek behind the business the business side of the, the the animation industry that we all love so much you know there is a business side to saturday morning cartoons and it doesn't actually it doesn't spoil the magic for me it enhances the magic for me and uh i really you heard him kind of push back like he did not want to take the praise and i get that like i appreciate saying listen i'm just one guy that worked on this and he's right there are so many writers one of the reasons the series was as good as it was is because it was written very well it was not written like a commercial it was not written like you know just lazily you know how can we cut through this as quickly as possible it was written with serious character development and one of the things that comes through in the series if you've never seen it you got to check it out um is that there though there is no like x-files connecting mythology to the Dungeons and Dragons television series, there is a lot of character motivation that comes through as the series develops. If it had gone on longer, I'm curious to see what would have happened. Now, look, I know we have a, uh, this didn't come up in the interview, but there's sort of like a, there was an end. There was an end story. The whole series, the kids are trying to get back home. They're trying to get back to our world. There was a definitive end that never actually happened. And then later, years later, a group of voice actors got together and kind of dramatized that script. I love that that's not... I love that they never came back. I love that in my mind, 40 years later, I'm reading fresh adventures about these guys because they're still there. The beautiful thing about the series is that time stopped in our world. Time passes for them in the Dungeons & Dragons world, but in our world, no time has passed. 
So they've left nothing behind. Their family's okay. Their you know their friends are okay. They're just off having an adventure, and they can come back when they're done with it. And I hope that they never do, because I love what that adventure offers, and it it's a connection for me to reconnect, you know, to 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 get back in touch with something from my childhood. Uh, and it's still there waiting on me. And I love that. And I love the conversation that I was able to have with Mark Evanier. Hopefully I can connect with him about some other things. How about that Thundar stuff that he he wrote the darkest cartoon opening of all time. He named Thundar. That was, that's good stuff. I, I would love to talk about Thundar with Mr. Evanier. Uh, please do support Mark. Go over, check out his website. He's prolific. I think he posted like three times in one day. Is the, like as I'm recording this, he just posted like three times in one day. So he is a writer. He is a guy that is constantly telling stories, and uh, I am here for it. I know you are too. Thank you for listening to this episode or watching this episode. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe, support this podcast by sharing it with other people, by engaging in the comments, by giving a thumbs up if you're watching it on YouTube. Anything you do to engage supports this uh, supports this podcast. Supports me. Remember, serialatmidnight.com is your hub for everything Serial at Midnight. If you're not checking it out for the reviews, if you're not checking it out for the news posts or anything else that goes up there, uh, remember, it's a day. I post there just about every single day. So SerialAtMidnight.com, there's a link to our Patreon there. You can support Serial at Midnight on a deeper level if you would like to do that. Uh, thanks to Mr. Evanier. Thanks to you guys. Till next time, I will catch you later. <laughs>